0: Content warning, this episode mentions residential schools, colonial gender, and lateral violence. Ani, Riley Esno, Indigenous, I'm Riley Esno, and you're listening to Red Certains. Workshop I was in half recently, a facilitator asked us all to go around the table and name one queer Indigenous person who we knew that inspired us. As my place in the circle got closer and closer, I began to panic. I was finding this task exceedingly difficult, but not for the reason one might initially think. I found it difficult because I struggle to think of an Indigenous person in my life now who isn't gay. Indeed, when I still think about all of my friends, the artists I follow, the scholars I admire and read, I realize that the vast majority of them are queer in some way. This was actually a very incredible realization to sit with. After all, too many gays to count is not exactly how I would describe the Indigenous queer representation I felt growing up in a highly religious community in the North or in Thunder Bay. But today, certainly, Indigenous queer and two-spirit people are innumerable and undeniable, as is our impact in every space we occupy, including politics and governance. We'll be talking more about this queer Indigenous governance in a moment with our guest, but first, I want to quickly break down a bit of the relationship between Indigenous queerness, colonization, and resurgence for listeners. Firstly, we know that queer and 2S plus people have been part of our nations and communities since time immemorial. So much of what settlers picture as a liberally forward moving progress is actually just them catching up with the understandings and practices that have been here for far longer than they have. According to the MMIWG 2SLGBTQQIA subworking group. Of the 200 indigenous languages spoken throughout the North, spoken throughout North America that we know of, at least 150 of them have terms to identify individuals who are neither male or female. Indeed, our languages tell us what queer and 2S people already know, that we have always been here. And it's not just our languages which tell us this. I think, for example, of Anishinaabe teachings of Nanabush. In most accounts, Nanabush is described as a shapeshifter, moving between identities, forms, and genders, or absent of gender markers altogether. We see that one of our very foundational and sacred entities is queer. And we know that many other nations hold stories of similar queer figures and teachings. Colonizers recognize these understandings of gender and sexual diversity amongst indigenous people. In fact, some of the earliest written accounts of indigenous queerness come from the journals of Jesuit missionaries from the 1600s. Here, the distinct, diverse queer identities we occupied became homogenized into bird ashes, a term which loosely translates to prostitute. Yes, our acceptance and love for queer people went firmly against the Western and Christian worldviews of the time, and as such, they became one of the earliest targets for annihilation at the onset of colonization. When I hear survivors talk about residential schools, for example, you'll often hear about siblings being separated on the basis of presumed gender, certain hair and clothing styles opposed on certain bodies, gendered labor expectations, etc., This is traumatic, not just because of the way it strips individuals of their agency and expression, but because it is a negation of an integral component of Indigenous worldviews. The colonizers brought the closet here, so to speak. We Indigenous queer people continue to feel the lasting impact this has. Oftentimes, our own communities fail to see the way that colonialism has impacted our conceptions of queerness and can do the colonizers' work for them of enacting violence on queer kin. The National Inquiry into Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women and Girls also recognized this in its 2019 final report, stating that especially from res and rural and remote communities, 2SLGBTQ people are often forced to leave their traditional territories and communities to find either safety or community elsewhere. Ceremonial spaces can enact strict gender protocols which alienate and harm queer community members, excluding them from what can be an essential aspect of our lives. Governance spaces and leadership positions like Indian Act bands get monopolized by cisgender and heterosexual men, and so on and so on. And sometimes it isn't even this active exclusion or prejudice which queer and 2S people face, but this romanticization of a pre-colonial role that we're assumed to occupy. Take, for example, the terms Two-Spirit or Nij which was created by Cree elder Myra Laramie in 1990 in Winnipeg. For Laramie, the term spoke to this feeling and experience she had of carrying both a male and female spirit. It was quickly adopted as a way to put language, other than Pradesh, to a common experience, to create community and a point which people could politically organize around. Cree scholar Alex Wilson highlights that there's a lot of variation in the term's meaning today. She says, in general... Two-Spirit is used by Indigenous people to recognize that there's a diversity of sexuality and gender within our cultures. It's a modern term that recognizes our ancient understandings of our identity. To this point as well, Oji writer Joshua Whitehead says, I think Two-Spirit is a placeholder for folks finding terminologies within their own language systems to name themselves and claim themselves to. It's also a way to honor all of those people who came before us, who were the most badass ass indigiqueers to have ever existed and who made space for us to be here today. We take that word with pride. There is a fluidity to the term, which makes people I give workshops to about it, settler folks, uh, very mad. But (laughs) this inability to be boxed in or succinctly defined is in itself pretty queer. But despite this, I have found many people really try their hardest to make this inherently fluid term static. Two-spirit begins to apply to all Indigenous queer people. It always means male and female spirit. It means we were always shaman or medicine people in pre-colonial times. We were this special brand of sacred. But what about those of us who don't relate to this idea of special Indigenous queers who hold those specific responsibilities? Marie Lang, in their book, Urban Indigenous Youth Reclaiming Two-Spirit, interviews 10 youth who share their understandings of the term. And it results in this bountiful collection of reflections about indigeneity and queer identity, including my favorite chapter, Refusing the Question, What Does Two-Spirit Mean? In it, one articulation stands out to me from a young person who said, and I'm paraphrasing here, I don't really know what my role would have been in community pre-colonization. All I know is that I would have been queer and I would have been loved. We resist singularity and we are making our own meanings all of the time. Perhaps this is why, back to my struggle of picking just one inspiration, I feel it's always Indigenous queers at the fore of research movements, cultural creation, and artistic innovation. Some of the biggest names in Indigenous art are queer. Kent Monkman, Jeremy Dutcher, Devry Jacobs, Chris Dirksen, Billy Ray Belcourt, and on and on and on. What is it about the Indigenous queer experience that brings us to these places? And what more can we be doing as Indigenous people to cultivate futures queer people deserve? To talk about these meanings and more, I want to introduce today's guest, Emily Riddle. Emily is a member of the Alexander First Nation in Treaty Six Territory. She grew up in and is currently based in Edmonton. She's experienced working with First Nations and Métis communities on policy, governance and communications projects. And prior to her current role, she worked for the First Nations Education Steering Committee, a nonprofit that represents over 100 First Nations. She is currently the senior advisor, indigenous relations for the Edmonton Public Library and was named top 30 under 30 by the Alberta Council for Global Cooperation in 2019. Her writing has appeared in the Globe and Mail, Teen Vogue, Vice and other publications. And late last year, um, she released her first book of poetry, The Big Melt. I also know Emily through the Yellowhead Institute, where I believe you're on the board of advisors, and I'm a research fellow. And the first time we met in person was in Rama in, in pre-COVID days, which is like a lifetime ago. But it was this great week or so of just a bunch of indigenous youth, largely queer youth as well, brought to Casino Rama and <laughs> to, <laughs> hanging out at the casino and eating at the buffet and talking about all sorts of things, memes and governance and 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 ceremony. And it was definitely a highlight for me in recent years of like, oh man, I wish conferences were were more like this all of the time. And Emily helped lead that. So, That's how we first met. And I also have been teaching now for one semester um, Emily's work uh, to my undergrad class. I teach um, at Toronto Metropolitan University, uh, the Indigenous Justice and Governance course. And Emily's article, Indigenous Governance is Gay with Guts magazine, was one of the first readings I assigned. And so we're going to get into that. But I want to just say hello and, and give you any space to introduce yourself if you want.
1: Yeah, hello. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I think your introduction was great. I would just say um, So yeah, I'm joining you from, from Treaty 6 in, in Edmonton. And it's so interesting to come back to this article because I definitely wrote it at a very angsty time when I was living in Vancouver. So it's interesting to reflect um, being back on the prairies <laughs> how I feel about it now. <laughs>
0: I'm going to link it in the story um, for today's podcast so that folks can get a sense of what we're talking about as well. Um, but like in my mind, when I was reading it and when I assigned it to folks, um, there was like two main things that stood out to me um, or that I wanted them to catch, which is that like first there is like an articulation of a particular understanding of what governance is or should be or should not be. <laughs> and then second, there's like an explanation of how queer, Indigenous and feminist spaces have been modeling that understanding understanding of governance, um, you know, just in their communities and ways of being, even if not explicitly stated that way or framed that way. Um, so, I mean, first, I was wondering if you could talk about how you understand and and if it's different maybe now since it's evolved and since you've written that article about Indigenous or Nehiyal governance um, versus settler governance.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think so. The time period of this article, a little bit of context is um, living on the West Coast when everything was kind of happening at iGov <laughs> is one context that's important. So it um, was kind of a, a speak back to what was happening at UVic in terms of like having like governance or Indigenous governance being like a very masculine space. And then also being like a Indigenous woman who is queer working directly in policy for First Nations, like in negotiation tables with the federal and provincial government for BC First Nations and and realizing how like much toxic masculinity existed in like interacting with Indian leadership and stuff like that too so that's kind of like context of uh, my specific angst at the time of the article um which some of the things i'm 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 saying it but i'm not quite saying directly about that and now i feel comfortable saying those are the context um but in terms of different uh indigenous governance or nihilo governance versus settler governance i think as i have learned like being a political science student and having to study like governance versus government versus politics all these sort of things like settler governance for me is really like systems in which they um designed to uh, settle problems and so it's very hierarchical it com- becomes about like conflict management and and kind of control and for me like indigenous governance or Nihio governance um some of my elders would say is like ways in which we like live it up with the deities or how we like live well amongst each other so i think that's kind of like the major differences um Yeah, it being about conflict versus it being about how do we live in harmony amongst one another and just like expanding a a definition of governance, because I think lots of people who don't study political science or think about governance versus government think that government's like what's happening at the Alberta legislature with everyone like yelling at each other (laughs) on the floor, things like that versus like governance is like how we behave amongst each other in a group of friends and deal with like conflict or boundaries and all that sort of stuff is a form of governance that we're all doing all the time. And, and then that way it kind of takes up back our own self-determination because we we know we're not able to be fully self-determining because we don't have access to our territories or we're controlled via the Indian Act, via our citizenship or and all these other aspects of our lives. So if we think about governance being how we behave amongst each other, whether that's like in a ceremony or going to a queer club, um, that is like a form of kind of reclamation
0: in that way. Right. I, I do think that's a really important distinction to make, like this idea that um, government is like the structure and governance maybe is more like the principles that guide the structure. I think that's really useful. And you bring up the queer club at the end. And in the article, you bring up um, the hair salon as like your first introduction to what governance looked like and specifically how women and queer folks um, enact governance. Are you able to talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, my mom has been a hairdresser since she was like 17. And so interesting, I've done more learning like since moving back home that like a hairdresser is like one of our oldest like occupations um, that we had. So there was traditionally like a hairdresser in most uh, communities. And there were like different high hairstyles depending on like the ceremonial season that we were in, how people would style their hair. Or like we know that often people would cut their hair if there's a specific deck, things like that. Um, so she's been a hairdresser since she was 17. And so, uh, we never got sent to daycare. So I was often like in the basement of a hair salon, like folding foils and stuff like that too, like as a kid. Um, and so I just really observed how her like working on people's hair appearances and speaking to them about like their everyday problems of their life, um, was like a form of governance and, and making sure people felt good about themselves and felt heard. I think lots of folks don't have outlets to talk about how they feel, Um, And so like their hairdresser or massage therapist or that person might be that one person. So and also like the conflict and uh, different things that happen in salons as well in terms of like the business aspect is obviously a different form of governance, too. So, yeah. And yeah, hairdressing is a very queer coded space. It was like mostly women and and queer men.
0: Yeah. I mean, like it feels to me when I think of a hair salon, like I think about it all as like the place where like, um, you know, self-expression is inherently meant to flourish. It's supposed to be this like form of self-care. And uh, I think that you you speak about it really well as like, it's a way to enact, Um, I think you say like self-determination over our bodies um, mm-hmm. as a way there. And and so like, that's a really interesting idea to me as well that like care and just going to the hair salon is like our own little forms of, of self-determination. Um, mm-hmm. de- definitely different than the way it's talked about in my poli-sci classes, you
1: know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> (laughs) And also like for Indigenous people, we haven't always had control over our hair either, like that hasn't been, or our bodies in general, but hair in particular, like in terms of being institutionalized in residential school or um, mental health institutionalized, like people would often have their hair cut, things like that too, or in the foster care system. So like a reclamation of being able to determine what your hair looks like, whether that's short or long too, is like a whole other like queer conversation too. (laughs)
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I feel like I still see horribly, like, you know, things on CBC and stuff like that of teachers like cutting kids hair um at school and like, you know, really violating that that self-determination and that reclamation. So, yeah, the politics of hair might be an idea for <laughs> for a, another episode here, a full episode. Um. <laughs> What other ways can you think of where, like, um, you know, maybe not just growing up, but that Indigenous queers um, model and model and inform our our understanding of governance?
1: I think queer people or gay people are just more upfront about, like, their needs amongst each other and protective of each other, Um, even, like, internally in Indigenous communities, whether they're urban or rural, because we've had to be for a long time. Whether that was being secretive about all being queer and having to protect each other in that way when people were not able to be as public. Um, or now just checking in with each other, knowing if people have gotten home, things like that too. So the kind of like micro communities that get made, um, like in urban centers, largely too, because we see people uh, migrating from reserve in the 50s and 60s because there isn't enough housing or because women are forced to leave reserves because they're no longer members if they marry out, different things like that as well. Um, lots of that happened in Alberta where people moved to Edmonton in the 60s. And we see this resurgence of political organization, um, with Metis and First Nations people in the 60s. Um, we have like so many good stories of like the Black Panthers regularly coming to visit with the Metis Nation in Alberta. And Alberta was like really kind of the hotbed of organizing at that time for Indigenous people when we have the red paper and that sort of stuff too. And you do hear like little whisperings of queer organizing happening in that time um, too, that folks were having to be protective so of each other. Um, but now I do still see that kind of protection or I don't know. I, I don't know any like straight people who are up, as upfront about like the the way that their friend groups are governed, like for better or for worse, which I talk about in the article too, that kind of like close kinship that um, happens in queer communities. is like a double-edged sword sometimes that people are, you know, surveillance or um, closeness uh, as well.
0: Yeah. Maybe I have the quote here because I, I appreciated that. One of the... And- tense I had of this space was that like I found like so many podcasts about Indigenous issues um, are like geared towards settler folks to educate them like about um, Indigenous people and like while that's necessary that means that there's like not often spaces held just for the conversations we should be having amongst ourselves and um, the things that we need to be working on and doing and so With that audience being kind of in mind, I I really appreciated this quote that says, this is not to say that queer Indians are always doing governance well. We need to talk about violence that is erased in queer communities when we assume that perpetrators are always men or that toxic masculinity is something that only cishet men perpetuate. And sometimes uh, you're going to have to help me with my Cree here. (laughs) 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 Makotoin means an unhealthy relationship to surveillance through social media that perpetuates call out uh, culture and queer Indian communities. And I love that because it reminds me also something of, um, uh, I mean, I hate it, but I love that it reminds me of Leanne Simpson, who also talks about the way that like our, our relationships and also bringing them to online spaces and feeling very invested in accountability can bring about harm. Yeah, I appreciate that you're making, that in your writing, you're you're saying all these amazing ways that we model, um, you know, governance, but then also that there's um, work that we have to do. How do you kind of reflect on that now, five years later? Like, where, where are we at in having those conversations? maybe.
1: It's so interesting to think about, like, okay, the like, social media aspect, I'll go back to the first aspect after, but like, there was like no Instagram stories, I don't think in 2018, like social media looks really different at that time, right? Making myself feel old. Uh, but like surveillance was happening really differently. I think there was like, this was kind of like height of like Indian Twitter too, which I mean, we have Elon Musk bought Twitter and things are definitely going downhill <laughs> on there in general. But yeah, Wakotawin means like kinship. So like, I think people like queer community have to have that closeness that exists a lot of the time. And that does mean a certain like level of surveillance or closeness um, where you are personally offended when people make actions that you don't agree with a lot of the time too. Um, and so, and call out culture looks so different now. I think that was kind of like height of call out culture. Now we have um a bit more dialogue about that like i do really appreciate leanne simpson like there's a sort of um closeness that people feel from online relationships um that doesn't necessarily always translate to in person and the tone that you're using online i think people think that i'm like way meaner than i am in person (laughs) via my online persona which is really funny because i I think i mostly shitpost now i'm not (laughs) Um, <laughs> posting seriously all the time, but I think that that kind of like tone doesn't always get communicated either. So, in queer community, at, at that time I was seeing like a lot of Twitter callouts and things like that too, where I wish we could just like be in a room and, and talk about the problem. And then the, the, yeah, you know, the first one in terms of, yeah, like, um, toxic masculinity, just I think like because I'm bisexual and I also date men. <laughs> Um, a lot of people who are like newly out will say things like, um, I'm so excited to be like only dating women or non-binary folks. Cause I'm not going to face like all this stuff that I faced dating men. And some of the most like emotionally violent relationships I've been in, I've been with other women. Um, it's not like you're escaping, um, those kind of dynamics too, or, or people being able to inhabit toxic masculinity or, or other poor behavior. It's not like queerness is some sort of like utopia. To reach so and talking about us being like better at governance i didn't want us to think everyone to think that i'm saying that like queer people don't also aren't also violent and shitty sometimes so that was really important to me and also that we i mean we live in this like settler colonial country where we're observing this poor behavior and and um and we are all trying to survive genocide and all like intergenerational survivors of residential school and, and various other processes so Um, It's not like things are always a cakewalk in in living in queer Indian community either.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think also um, to your point about social media, I think one of the things, um, I don't know how you feel about this, but I'd love to hear is that, um, so I, I find like it hard personally to have this line between like, we have to uphold accountability in our spaces and in our communities. But then at the same time, I think actually like, holding accountability is a very specialized role, like enacting accountability is something it takes um, a level of of patience and capacity and skill set that not everybody's equipped with. But I think we've also simultaneously taught people like we all have to be holding uh, people accountable. Personally, I have, but like a lot of people I imagine have a hard time finding that balance between those two messages. And yeah, I don't know if that resonates at all.
1: I think yeah that is super difficult and I honestly find it so much easier in Edmonton to have these conversations than like in Vancouver when I was living there because I mean most people in Edmonton they're living on their own territory that's like who's your mom who's your aunties like who's like why are you behaving like this you know Uh, it's so much easier here than in a big city like Toronto or Vancouver where it's like a bunch of Indians from all different places (laughs) who aren't living on their territory um, and that comes to like, I don't want to turn the conversation into like pretending and stuff because <laughs> that is a lot of the call we're dealing with these days too. But even when it's behavior oriented, um, it definitely to find it easier here. Um, and then when it's online and you're not connected to that person, like maybe they are doing that work or being held accountable and you're just like not aware of it either. So I think it's always, it's good to like keep people in our life that are um, willing to have those conversations. Like, I mean, if you don't have an, a community of folks, so we're going to call you out when you mess up. Um, you should build one. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. So, politics of hair, uh, politics <laughs> of online races We're adding to the list, but I also I want to talk um, I, about something that I mentioned in the introduction of this episode, which is about like the term two-spirit. And one of the reasons I was also really excited to talk to you is because um, a couple years back, it was either on Instagram or Twitter, I can't remember, but I saw a post you made <laughs> that you were talking about how like you identify as queer, but not necessarily two-spirit. And you shared an explanation about why that was and how um, that what that term meant to you. And I remember really appreciating it because I also identify as queer, but not two-spirit. And I think a lot of, like I said, settler folks, especially, like have this assumption that indigenous gay automatically equals two spirit. Um, And then there's some things that I think that can be harmful about that. So yeah. What is your relationship um, to the term?
1: Yeah. Two spirit. It's something I, I I definitely grew up with and yeah, I have so much to unpack with two spirit. (laughs) Um, I think I, part of my like maybe initial aversion to using the term for myself when I was growing up was that I really just saw like cis um, gay men using it in the pra- on the prairie. And so I didn't see myself um, in, in them um, using that term. So that was kind of probably like the initial reason why I, when I was young. Um, and I, I really appreciate all the organizing that's happened under that term it is, as you said, a term that comes out of Winnipeg is a prairie-specific um, term that's like rooted in Anishinaabe thought. Um and there was, yeah, lots of Korean niche organizing that happens in Winnipeg around that term and that kind of rippled out um, to Edmonton as well. Um, for me, I've always identified as queer or like Theo Hands, like queer term that they came up with um, in the, I think, early 2000s, just because I have always understood myself part like to be a cis woman who happens to be is part of the reason. So when I understand like my place in Nehio society is that, is that of a woman, um, regardless of some, my partner being different. So I see myself as having like kinship responsibilities to open up conversations around um, gender in ceremonial spaces and cultural spaces like that. But I definitely, I'm very comfortable, like being on the woman's side, wearing a long skirt, that sort of like aspect of, of our responsibilities of that are it's like Iskwewak-based. Um, for plain free people, I can't speak for all Greek people, we have like eight genders in our history of creation story. Um, so we call people that are not women or men like Iskwewak or So there are folks that are um, not. and And then, yeah, in our creation story, there's also like a lot of figures that are Um, not men or women like I don't know why we we can't like really project that kind of gender binary onto onto these like beings that exist um they're like too holy to have I don't know to be limited in that way so for me I've always seen myself as yeah queer I know there's like um a lot of older gay people or um older two-spirit people kind of reject the term queer because it was a slur that folks were Called often to or not a positive, but I've only really ever seen lived in the era of it being a kind of positive reclaimed term. So I think I understand some people use two spirit as also just being sexuality and not gender, but for me, it, it never felt right partially because of that gender aspect.
0: Yeah, yeah. I I relate to a lot of that. Both the um it, growing up in the era where queer was something that like felt like I could own it and wasn't loaded with that same sort of um harmful connotation that other people grew up with. And this idea that like, yeah, I also came to understand two spirit as um as something that spoke to both sexuality and gender. Um, And I would also identify as a cis woman. And so that felt, um, uh, you know, something to navigate, at least. That made it an imperfect term in the way that queer didn't feel so complicated. (laughs) I was talking to Jeremy Dutcher once on this panel about uh, Two Spirit. And one of the things that I've come to really appreciate it for, more so than like an an individual's like... um, or not more so but in addition to I should say an individual's like ability to like form their own identity is like that it was like so much a tool to politically organize around that in talking to him he was talking about how his elders were sharing that like before uh, Two Spirit was there like it was very hard to say like oh we couldn't access services for example that were um, just for queer people because like they weren't um, like indigenously informed and then indigenous services weren't made specifically for queer indigenous folks in mind and so like two spirit really allowed like a form of language to to organize around that so yeah I I just um I'm thinking about that as like also a movement term and a resistant term as well as an identity and think that that's like a really also important piece to note about it um
1: yeah and I it's not even generational because I know there's lots of like um youth coming out now these days that are still using the term two-spirit so I think I will, uh, will live on like some people really feel it as an identity term um and are able to attach to that political organizing too so in both ways.
0: Two-spirit not going anywhere. No. <laughs> <Like it>. Um <laughs> I also want to talk about your book, uh, The Big Melt. I I would love to hear you talk about it in general. I know from the questions I sent you beforehand, I didn't have that as one, but I'd love you to talk about that at all as you feel it relates to our conversation. But also I just, in um, seeing it online and seeing you online, I saw so much love for it from like so many of the queer folks we've mentioned so far in the podcast, like Joshua Whitehead and Billy Ray Belcourt and Yaz Morgan. And it like, it really reminded me of the way that I think that queer Indians seem to always be the ones at the fore of, of creating cultural innovation. And I wondered if you also found that to be true and if you have any theories about why that might be.
1: Hmm. I think that's so, um, actually, Yaz in particular has kind of taken up. I think that, like, as someone who was a curator and, like, art historian, they didn't really, like, see themselves in governance or, or policy a little bit until we had started having these, like, broader conversations. And, um, they did that report for Yellowhead about policy and, and art in Canada, Indigenous art, too. So, um, in terms of why we're at the forefront, um, so hard. I always, like, my, I have, like, very talented friends around me artistically and academically, too. And I'm, and most of them are queer. Um, and I think some of this has to do with, like, a lot of folks like not knowing how long they'll be here. Um, because we see these previous generations who aren't around us because of the HIV epidemic and, and other reasons. I mean, we know Indigenous people don't live to be as long, particularly if you're talking about trans Indigenous women, um, too, or people on the prairie. So, um, I think that is kind of like a, a need to get our art out sometimes, which is a little bit morbid, but that is true to, st- like, move that conversation forward my book came out of me actually living in East Vancouver, like surrounded by poets. I was doing like more journalistic work that was kind of mentioned in the beginning. And then like also, yeah, working in policy um, and writing nonfiction, a book that I'm still working on <laughs> about treaty feminism and feeling like really stifled by um, that kind of writing. And so poetry was kind of a way for me to envision a world that was otherwise in an easier sense. Like part of that, that gets, magazine article is also a little bit experimental. It's not um, an academic article either. Um, It features like um, embedded quotes from poems and things like that too. So a little bit more experimental. And and this book was that The Big Melt, um, an expansion of that kind of writing. So yeah, the book is really a theme kind of about uh, Prairie Indian utopia and and kind of coming home and thinking about through like what it's like to live in late capitalism Um in Alberta, like during climate change, and really thinking through I don't know like a, a confessional kind of poetry craft as well. It was like a feminist um, history of, of confessional poetry that sometimes people shit on. Um, but wanting to like process my life like from breakups to like, I don't know growing up in proximity to the oil sands, <laughs> all these sort of things um, to like treaty and how we live in it in an urban space. so, one other thing that's kind of queer about the book that I think about a lot um, is like, and also just an indigenous thought is like an understanding of time and whether or not that's that's linear um, and and understanding like that our, our ancestors who adhered to treaty, um, whether they, they're still here, they were thinking of us, how we were existing at that time, like waiting to come to, to this realm. Um, and then also just like processing um, my kind of fam- family's um, intergenerational trauma and our place for place on the prairies and how we've like reclaimed that or tried to deal with um, specific violences that are here. So it's really um, I'm not like a I get questions about like it's definitely prose poetry. I don't write rhyming poetry. A lot of them are just like small essays um, with archival stuff like that. So well, it's been yeah really cool to go on. We did a events last month in Toronto and Halifax. One was um, co hosted by Yellowhead, which was really lovely to think about like. Even when we started Yellowhead, um, I don't think we thought about, like, doing, like, art policy or considering, like, poetry a form of governance or, like, expanding things that way, too. So I think that that conversation has um, been brought into in the last um, few years as well, which is nice.
0: Yeah, it feels like at Yellowhead specifically that, like, um, the the queer indigenous uh, leadership has, has definitely exploded between, um, like, I know you were there for, like, very early days, but, and then, like, Megan Scribe has recently come on and Yaz and, like, all of these folks who I would consider certainly like thought leaders um, in indigenous like queer scholarship and art and all of those things. So um, Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm so excited about all the things that happened there. So I guess first to your point about like the morbidity of dying young, (laughs) um, it reminds me of a quote from Tommy Pico who said like, you know, um, we're doing so much because we're dying so young. So like just to emphasize that there's uh, a lot of that sentiment out there and that um the the anxiety that comes from also just I think like uh intergenerational like queer indigenous trauma um and finding ways to express that is like makes so much sense to me I also how much of it is like uh because um like our existences uh, I think inherently push at least like push every boundary of like the colonial world that like it's like a, a bit of a necessity to imagine alternatives as well. Um, and so like I think finding ways um, without though having maybe access to like um, power and and leadership position and status in the same way that um, others do, that it makes sense to me that maybe art is also like how it all gets channeled out. Um, to that point, I'm wondering, how do you think like the people even younger than us, I, I won't make you say your age. I don't know. I'm I'm 23, so I'm young, but I know that even younger than me, like I think about my little brother who's like 18. He's just graduating high school and he was showing me his like high school, um w- one of his projects that they had to do. And it was all about heteropatriarchy. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like I was in high school. They didn't even like, you know, mentioned that indigenous people existed hardly and now you're like deconstructing heteropatriarchy so like um the youth at 18 17 youth be doing things so i don't know what are your observations about that
1: Ah, uh, yeah so I, I turned 32 yesterday so i'm like almost i'm getting to be middle-aged <laughs> um but the folks that are younger than me i think they just like put up with less shit too um in terms of working with institutions or structures like they're like this isn't good enough i'm not i'm not gonna sit here for this slow change and and i respect that a lot especially in this era of climate change where we're like we don't know what's gonna happen in the next 50 years in terms of having an inhabitable climate um or planet like we have to be pushy with these things so i i respect that a lot i learn a lot from folks that are younger than me and i also I mean, in Edmonton and like surrounding areas and different First Nations, I see like a lot of Two Spirit or queer folks like becoming really involved in ceremony and like going through our own cult- cultural processes to do things like become pipe carriers or lodge carriers and things like that too. In recognition that we lost like a lot of the generation of people who would have been able to do that um, have passed from HIV or were just like fully excluded from ceremonial spaces entirely. And so I have lots of elders in my life that are really working to make sure we have those, like um, Igwewak pipes too, so that folks, they exist and and like coming of age ceremonies that aren't necessarily specific for um, just men or women too, for Plains Cree people. So that kind of like ceremonial reclamation is something that people are are really doing. And also like, I don't know, for us, I think there's like always this attitude in order to have those kind of ceremonial teachings or cultural teachings that you have to earn them but they're actually your right to have um for us in particular so you just have to go through the right process of it and so i'm seeing a lot of younger people like feel deserving of those and actually go for them through those processes too in a way that i think like folks that are closer to the residential school era might not um have felt comfortable or deserving um and so pressing the previous generation for those teachings but i feel um, really hopeful, like everywhere, but also yeah, particularly in, in Treaty Six and in the prairies of, of that kind of culture of reclamation and not putting up with shit from the younger <laughs> generation.
0: I just also want to listen to you, hear hear you talk about the prairies all day, because when I think of uh, what's it called, prairie, pra- if it's prairie supremacy or prairie uh, prairie advocacy, I don't know. I know nobody really hypes it up like you. Um, what sort of, um, yeah, what being grounded in that, um, I don't know, how does, you've talked a lot about it, I think, throughout, but maybe just some space to like reflect on the prairie specifically as it relates to like, organizing, identity, whatever you want.
1: Yeah. Um. Yeah. I lived in Vancouver for five years, and I really wanted to come home. I think like, ah, oh, part of it is um, I really actually thought that I would live in Edmonton for two years and then go to Toronto. And I'm like, no, I think I'm here. <laughs> um, it's just like life here is is in some ways more difficult because we deal with this like very, I mean, it's conservative government in Ontario too, but very conservative kind of culture. Um, and also, like, austerity, all these sorts of things. But at the same time, like, economically, it's easier to live here and, and make spaces. And because we live in this conservative province, like, people are really down to organize and create community um, that is alternative to. And I mean, um, also, I think those kind of like talked about the 1960s and organizing in Alberta. We still have that kind of um, like intergenerational transmission of, of that um, uh, organizing. I think, like, sometimes prairie people are like, I don't know, depicted as like overly peaceful, <laughs> but um, I yeah, I do reflect on that in my book too. But I do, I also think um, there is that kind of conniving or uh, organizing that is continued on.
0: <laughs> I, mean, I, I used to I was a classic I said p- spoke about this in the last episode where I was like this classic 18 year old angsty teen and was like I hate my hometown like I'm gonna move to Toronto and blah 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 and like now um like that place it's it's like such an important visit for all my all-around well-being to go back so regularly and so I think that there's a very natural progression I don't know if there's anything else you're sitting with anything that maybe got brought up while we were talking
1: oh look at my notes today I, I had like I, I shouldn't even show you my, my very short jotting <laughs> down for 10 minutes what I wanted to touch on but um I guess kind of like returning to that like cultural context for us um like in our and how I know there to be like multiple genders and sexualities for us is actually like something that um women decided on so like in our culture we have this understanding of um like we all had this like we used to have a clan system which Nishinabe people have maintained like better than us um, a lot of free people say we don't have clans that's actually not true I don't actually know my clan I've been trying to figure that out um you can by if you go through the match if we're matrilineal um through the matrilineal line all the way back to like what their Indian names are and then if you find someone who can kind of depict that or figure out pick that apart from their name um, this, but I will go back to Uh, we had a clan system that was like controlled by women. So they knew like exactly what was happening in terms of people's genetics and like how to create like good leaders, like able to like mastermind all of this. And so in our story, like, um, things were getting like kind of stagnant in terms of like, I guess you could say governance, like people were, were bored or not getting along and there were like some societal problems. And so in our story, um, the women decided to create like queer people. Um, or igway black, people that were outside of that gender binary um, to kind of like shake things up um, and, and not necessarily like I think that queer people get and you talked about this too get depicted as like super sacred all the time um, but you they can also just be like troublemakers they people that like um, change makers in that way you don't have to be like a shaman or a medicine person you can just be like I don't know what someone like the young queer people I'm talking about now that's like this isn't good enough i like but we should be we should be asking for more things like that too so that actually comes from that tradition of like yeah shaking things up that was um in our story why the um queer and trans people exist
0: Ooh, I love that regrets for sharing I um I I love this idea of, like, also a bit of an, um, not to essentialize, but uh, a natural role for people to fall into as well as just being, like, resistant to the status quo. It reminds me um, of, uh, I don't know if you've read Rachel Flowers' article on um, love and rage on Indigenous women. And, like, she talks, like, specifically about Indigenous women, but I see a lot of what she talks about there as applicable to queer folks as well, about how, like, there is this expectation and it's gendered um that like non-men basically are responsible for like always cultivating loving tendencies like bringing us back to balance like all of these things and that like our 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 rage is also sacred too and um that like doing that is is a very important role um to think of so yeah i love that
1: yeah to shake things up which could be many different things to however people that choose to embody that
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: With that said... Uh,
0: is there any last recommendations you might give to folks um, in terms of to in, in spite, uh, not in spite, in, inspired by um, that facilitator who is, um, I don't think they'll mind. I'll say it, was, it was Jay Simpson, who is at the Yellowhead Freedom School, who said, go around and name like the Indigenous queers that you love and that you know. And um, so uh, that was where that came from. Do you want to name any Indigenous queers that you know and love and their work?
1: Mm-hmm. I would say, uh, Jess, uh, Jessica John. So if you haven't read Bad Cree, um, definitely read Bad Cree it is a story about, um, a queer young woman who lives in Northern Alberta, dealing with, um, the death of her sister and, and the haunting. It's like an Indigenous horror novel, um, that's done really well this fall. And I hope we see a Bad Queer, a Bad Queer, Bad Death episode two, a bad cream, uh, Bad Cree, um, movie coming out soon. I'm very hopeful for that. Um, uh, Matthew Ward, who's my um, friend, who's not a writer, we always, always like the one without a book, um, but is doing a lot of really excellent work with uh, PP Guan Page Guan, which is an indigenous um, media um, advisory firm here, and kind of like thinking through like decolonizing workplaces and what that looks like too, with their firm and, and indigenous engagement um, and like Twitch streaming too. I feel like yeah, there's so many different areas that he does. So those would be kind of the two, and then always like Jay Simpson and. Billy Ray Belcourt, Justin Ducharme, all those folks in Vancouver that are really like the kind of environment that I wrote this article in and um, started to think through these things a little bit more in community with them, Evan Ducharme, all those folks.
0: Oh, so good. I, I echo all that. Um yeah, I think that's all we have. Yeah. Miigwech for coming. Thank you. Is there anywhere people can reach you? Where do, where do they see your ship posts? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I know I need to hit uh, publish on my website one day. Um, but yeah, I met Emily Jane Riddle um, on most social media platforms, so um, there would be the best place.